Uh, we're in First Peter chapter 5, but like always, I always start, we don't want to just jump right into a book, uh, especially if we're just going to be one week into a book. First rule of always reading the Bible is just context, context, context. And so the context really brings a text to life. And so let me just do a quick overview of the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Peter, the apostle, is writing to Christians who have been scattered throughout what would be modern-day Turkey. And clearly the big idea of this book, or the key word here, is suffering. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And he's ministering to a suffering people. There will be trials of life, cares of the world, harsh challenges, calamities and catastrophes, suffering you will experience as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And so how can we be faithful living in an unfaithful world? And during this time, the Christians were being threatened and marginalized by their society. They were being alienated at home and at work. They are threatened wherever they went. They lost honor and reputation and standing, and even worse, they had unfriendly neighbors, pressure from non-Christian husbands, masters who are unjust. They go to the marketplace and they are insulted, accused of wrong, slandered, insulted, called fools, all of which would make life more than uncomfortable. And there's a famous piece of graffiti that we have from the first century from this area that depicts a donkey on a cross while the words, Alexander worships his God. And it seems Alexander was a Christian whose faith in Christ was being mocked. And in this context, Peter is always very pastoral. He's trying to teach him, how do you suffer well? How do you suffer well? How do you suffer faithfully? And that's my heart for you as one of your pastors or overseers. It's not our job to protect you from suffering. We cannot remove suffering from your life. You cannot remove suffering from your life. But it is our job to try to equip you to suffer well. To suffer faithfully. How can we suffer faithfully without being in sin? Because suffering can be caused by your circumstances, and oftentimes that suffering can lead to sin in how you respond. And suffering is inevitable, we know that, and yet no matter how many times Jesus teaches it, you will have trouble in this life, you will go through affliction, you will go through suffering. No matter how many times I hear that, I still get caught off guard, I get thrown off so easily the second Anything inconvenient enters into what I'm trying to create as my personal paradise or utopia. Anytime something comes in, I think, like, no matter what, no matter what I preach, my heart reveals that I feel like I'm entitled to a comfortable, stress-free life, and anytime anything comes in, it's an intruder. That's not how it's supposed to be. And that's fine for the world to think that. But especially as citizens of God's kingdom, we have an enemy outside of us, we have an enemy within us, and we live within a broken world, and we're trying to, uh, we're trying to swim upstream, we're trying to be faithful, 
When you follow Christ and he says, take up my cross and follow me, he is inviting you into a life of suffering. And I pray, you know, I don't, I've been matured enough where I don't pray that God would not give me suffering, but I need to grow in that I, I pray that when suffering comes, God, help me to be faithful. God, help me to walk with you. God, help me to fight for my faith. God, help me to fight for joy. Because it is a fight for faith. Help me believe. I am, help my unbelief. And in that is a believing doubt. There's a fighting doubt where you're not just turning away from God, but you're learning how to, like Job, you're processing, you're looking at God. Even in your suffering, you're, you're processing with God. You're facing God. This is a passage I've constantly needed to hear in my life, and I've actually alluded it to it, so sorry if there's some repeat material here today. But it's a passage that I needed to hear, and it's ministered to me, and I hope it ministers to you, okay? And so we're looking at Peter's conclusion to the book of 1 Peter, and we'll read 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read chapter, from verse 6 all the way to the end of the book. This is God's Word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, guard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so I'm just going to go very clearly and very simply through this text. We'll talk about briefly every part of the text. And starting with verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. And this section is talking about the pride of self-sufficiency the pride of our self-sufficiency. He gives a general exhortation here to humble yourself, which is one of the themes of this chapter. And earlier in chapter 5, humble yourself before your leaders, humble yourself before one another, and here, humble yourself before God. And he actually targets a specific audience. Right before this, in the verses before this, he exhorts those who are young, to humble yourself. Because it's not natural for someone who's young to be humble. We're in full control. We have all of our capacities. 
We can do whatever our minds set set us to do. Nothing can stop us. Life will last forever. It's very rare to see someone who is young and humble, and usually those are the people that you've seen have gone through major suffering. They haven't lived a charmed life, and that's why they are humble. But not just the younger, in all of us, there's a sense of pride, foolish, foolish self-sufficiency. And if we're honest, if we really were honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we live much more by the flesh, by the self, by the power of our flesh than we would admit. When we suffer, we need to humble ourselves. How? How do we humble ourselves? Recognize and be conscious and bow before the mighty hand of God. I look at this, I imagine God, my Father, the hand of my Father upon my shoulder. He looks at me. He says, wait. Humble yourself. Don't be angry. Don't be arrogant. And we live in conscious recognition of his presence. We are restraining ourselves. We bow our knees, always aware. When God says, my child, humble yourself. Instead of holding on to our rights, what will be natural We want to do it our way. We want to get angry. We want to fall into self-pity. And God says, humble yourself. You're not God. And we say, Father, this is not how I would have wanted it. But my life is in your hands. Our lives are not in our hands. Do we recognize that? Our lives are not in our hands. Psalm 31, verse 14 through 15 says, But I trust in you, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. We think our times are in our hands. That's our arrogance. We think we're in control. So when a problem comes, when suffering comes, we immediately try to fix it. We try to solve it. We think it's in our hands, our lives in our hands. So we'll use our hands, we'll use our mouth, we'll use our minds, we'll figure it out. We'll change this. We are the ultimate problem solvers. And for us control freaks, this is either that we need to have our hands on the wheel. For us control freaks, we will not let anyone else drive. I must drive. I must be in control. I must know the path. I must know the direction. Saying our lives are in his hands, that's terrifying. But for the humble who recognize they're not in control, that we're at best backseat drivers, It's freeing. It's freeing. 
If you know, to use a silly, simple example, that you're in the back seat, but the person who's driving your life is infinitely more powerful and wise than you. We're not in control. And when life is out of our hands, we realize that it's not out of control. We feel like it's out of control, but it's not out of control. It's just out of our control. Our lives are in His hands, and as Christians, we glory in that. His hands are infinitely better than ours, and the same hands that hold the world, the same hands that orchestrate world history, the same hands that had nails On the cross. And he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. Our lives are in his hands. They hold your personal stories. If that's true, even when life doesn't make sense, even when there's uncertainty, even when we don't know What's happening, uncertainty doesn't have to lead to panic. Foggy weather shouldn't scare us. A storm doesn't have to freak us out if we know God is navigating us through it. Our lives are not tossed around by chance or fates. We are not just a bunch of floating molecules. Our times are in His hands. All the issues of your life are under control. He is our Heavenly Father, and He is in control of the lifespan of sparrows and little birds. If they don't fall without Him knowing it, how much more will He take care of us who are infinitely more valuable than sparrows, His children? Does this answer all our questions? No. But it will strengthen us for tomorrow. He's our Father. Imagine He puts His hands on your shoulder, and He says, Be humble. Wait. There's plenty of things that we will not know. But in the gospel, we stick to what we do know. That God is mighty. That he loves us. And there's actually a promise here in this verse, in due season, in due season, and this is not some prosperity gospel or anything like that, but in due season, he will exalt you. And right before this, he says, God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Why does he help the humble? Because he looks at them and they're the ones looking up at him saying, we lift our eyes up to heaven. Where does our help come from? Our help comes God the maker of heaven and earth. We look up and say, God helps us. And he looks at that with such sympathy. And he says, I will help you. As opposed to the proud who looks at themselves and says, I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need help. And God says, fine, I won't help you. But the humble are lifted up and the proud are brought down. And in due season, whether in this life or the next, whether in eternity, he will lift you up. 
And in our pride and our inability to humble ourselves, what often happens when you face a situation, when you lose total control and you can't figure it out, what do we do? What do we do? We get anxious. We get anxious. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm very thankful that this verse is here. Verse, verse 7. It never says, if you're a Christian, you won't get stressed out. Paul says, ah, we have our, I have my anxieties and you have your anxieties. We all have them. It's very realistic. And what was always interesting to me is this section actually makes a surprising connection between our pride and our anxiety. Notice that verse 6 through 7, the ESV translates it correctly, that it's, verse 6 through 7 is one long sentence. If you have the NIV, it actually splits it up into two separate ideas, verse 6 and verse 7. But verse 6 and 7 are one long sentence. And the ESV gets it right because the only commandment here in verse 6 through 7, the only imperative, that's what we call it in the Greek, the only imperative or the commandment is to humble yourselves. That's your imperative. But how do you humble yourself? How do you do that? By casting all your anxieties upon him. That's the participle. That's the how. So think of it this way. We may something like say something to our kids like, eat, eat politely. How? By chewing with your mouth closed. Drive carefully. How? By keeping your eyes open. Humble yourselves. How? By casting your anxieties on him. Humble yourself and cast your anxieties on God. And what that's saying is at the heart of your anxiety is pride. The fruit is anxiety. The root is our pride, our self-trust, our self-sufficiency that we trust in myself with all my heart and lean on my understanding and acknowledge yourself. You can make your path straight. And we put ourselves in God's place. We sit in God's chair. I am wise. I am strong. I am capable. I am self-sufficient. I'm independent. I'm sophisticated. We've been lulled into this era of invincibility by our society, by our technology. I trust myself. And it's pride that's keeping you from casting your anxieties on him. Pride is what keeps you worried and burdened. Humility is what enables us to give our worries to God. We have to give up our pride, our desire for control. We all, like, do something about our anxieties. We try to usually distract ourselves, do something with TV or run away or something here. And here he's saying, cast your anxieties upon God. One author, Alistair Begg, says, humility's presence leads to anxiety's absence. Humility's presence leads to anxiety's absence. And when we attempt to take matters into our own hands, through too much worry, we indicate an absence of humility. 
We're more concerned with ourselves and with our Heavenly Father. We're more determined to navigate our own course than to leave it to Him. Only humble people can truly say, my Father knows best and He cares for me better than I can care for myself. And when we cast our anxieties into the mighty and loving hands that care for us, there's a freedom and peace that only He can provide. Cast your anxieties in the Greek. It's this decisive, energetic action word. You grab it. It's not like, oh, it just happens naturally. You grab it. It's like you're hurling it on Him. You, you, you take the trash, you throw it into the bin, cast it upon the Lord. And this idea of casting, it's the same word in Luke where it says they cast, they threw, they hurled their coats on the donkey, an animal of burden. Take off your cloak of anxiety off your own shoulders and throw it upon the shoulders of the Lord as believers One of the worst things you can have is a passive, reactive faith where there's no no intentionality, there's no consciousness, there's no mindfulness. We need to be active in the face of anxiety. Faith in the face of anxiety. Otherwise, it just paralyzes you. Anxiety paralyzes you. You want to run away, you'll get overwhelmed. It's an active process and facing in the Lord or facing the Lord in your suffering. Instead of sitting there, and I'll explain this, instead of sitting there listening to yourself, you talk to yourself, you preach to yourself, you devote yourself to prayer, and you fight for faith. Psalm 42, which I've mentioned in past sermons before, and it's a perfect example of this. Psalm 42, verse 5 says, Why are you cast down on my soul? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. You see how he's fighting for his faith here? He's actually talking to himself instead of listening to himself. One is active and faithful. The other is passive. And it sits there and you just lay there and you're listening to yourself and your thoughts spiral out of control and you get into fear and discouragement and paralysis. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old quote that I've always gone back to, and I'll just read it for us from his book called Spiritual Depression. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are there talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, listen, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you do this? Do you see how hard it is to fight for joy? This has always been an area of weakness for me, given my hypersensitivity and easily discouraged personality and just my general awareness. But it's one of the ways I can say God has grown me in learning how to handle myself and my own self-talk. 
Given the way I'm wired, my passive self-talk when I'm laying there at night is always discouraging, always hopeless, depressed, defeatist, catastrophizing. You've heard me say this, catastrophizing. I'm great at playing out hypotheticals in my head and telling myself bad news, and it's no wonder I'm easily discouraged. But this is, you know, like, I just think about it. Like, I, like if I had a boss or if I had a counselor that just constantly pounded negative thoughts into me, just constantly preached negative thoughts to me, constantly just worst-case scenario, constantly discouraging, I would quit that job or I would fire that counselor. But that's the boss in my mind. That's the counselor that's counseling me. I would quit. And for me personally, practically, one of the best ways that I've learned how to preach the gospel to myself is to sing truth. Sing truth. That's just, we're singing to each other. We're singing to God. We're singing to ourselves. And when I'm in moments where I just know I can't handle myself, I need to put, I personally, just practically, I always just put music on that brings me back to the truth. And it's when I start singing it, then I know I'm starting to fight for my faith. When you put God's truth to melody, and God knows the impact of music, and that impacts my soul. And that's my way of focusing my heart to protect me from my negative thinking, because we are what we think. There's truth to that. I need to say to myself, you know, like, sometimes I'll even say it out loud in the middle of the night, like, God, Jesus, you are my treasure. Jesus, you are my hope. Jesus, you are my life. Jesus, you are my joy. And I say, Pat, Pat, this is, I don't say this out loud, but I say, <laughs> Pat, I'm just not, I'm not actually, I do say the first thing I said out loud, but this one I don't, but it's just like, I, in my better moments, I'm able to sort of separate myself from myself and just say, this is hard, this is hard, but if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also freely give you all things? And I look at verses like 1 Peter 5. What do I need to know about God who's in control of my life? That God, God is mighty and God cares for you. Isn't that what you want to know about who's in charge of your life? He is mighty. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's leading you in your life. And not only that, He cares for you. He won't lead you down some twisted path for no reason. Yes, he will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. But why? Because he's always trying to get you somewhere better. He won't do anything that would harm you. He loves you. What can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? You are mighty God. You guide my life. You will take me on twists and turns. I don't understand, but you care for me. And even if you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And this battle against anxiety is a battle, therefore, to humble yourself and to believe the promises of God. Therefore, we need to hear the word of Christ, which will increase our faith. And so preaching to ourselves the word is the way you will battle. 
And that is how we will protect ourselves from ourselves and from the world, and in this context, from Satan. There's a close connection, moving on to verse 8, there's a close connection between self-sufficiency and anxiety and because that's when Satan enters your life. Be sober-minded, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced in your brotherhood throughout the world. Once pride shows up, Satan can get us. That's what originally happened to Peter, who's the author of this book. When you exalt yourself in self-sufficiency, you won't look out for the devil. And what Jesus said back in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him in his pride, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And that's exactly what happened in Peter's pride. And Satan got him at that moment. But Christ held on to him. And he strengthened the brothers. He wrote this book. In his pride, saying, God and Jesus prayed for him, and he became so amazing. From prideful and arrogant Peter, who had to be humbled because he didn't humble himself, to someone who speaks out of deep spiritual experience. And now out of that experience, he's strengthening the brothers. His self-sufficiency is gone, and that helps him resist the devil. Once anxiety grips us, we can get devoured, things get twisted, we fall into despair, we become drunk of the mind. We're overcome by our negative thoughts and negative emotions and sinful feelings. We're intoxicated with our anxiety and pride. We drink of discouragement. We lose all heavenly perspective. We have this skewed, limited perspective. And we become overcome by fear we're drunk with despair, drunk with our ability, drunk with our inability. Our faith in ourselves, and as opposed to being sober-minded, being watchful, be sober-minded. Be clear in your thinking because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have to be sober-minded to guard yourself. You can't be driven by your emotions or feelings. As John Piper points out, he says, the devil here is not pictured as a sly snake who sneaks, sneaks up on you and bites you or heel. Here he's pictured as a roaring lion. Why roaring? Lions roar when they are hungry and angry, and he's trying to terrify you, make you afraid fill you with anxieties, keep you off balance and nervous. And he's trying to bite and claw Christians in particular who are suffering. His aim is to destroy your faith through suffering, to make you doubt the goodness of God or the presence of God or the power of God or that God cares for you. This is how his horrible roar and bite, the claws, the teeth, that's how he gets us. And Peter tells us, 
resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Even when you get cut, Piper continues, when the claws cut and when the teeth sink in, don't stop believing. Don't stop being humble. Don't stop returning good for evil. Don't stop rejoicing. Don't stop loving. That is successful resistance to the roaring lion. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourself, humble yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And it's interesting to me how he points out that, hey, you guys are suffering, but there's also this suffering. It's a common suffering that is going on throughout the world that other believers have gone through and are going through. Because I think one thing that Satan wants us to feel when we're suffering is that we're alone. Like you're the only one in the whole world. And as much as we see people fail, we see throughout history brothers and sisters who have stood firm in the face of trial. And verse 10 gives us an amazing promise. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter suffered, he failed, he denied Christ, he turned away, but he repented and he was restored, he was confirmed, he was strengthened. He was established by Christ, and it's not just him. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet another with a kiss of love. And quote, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, one pastor, he points out that those, when he's talking about those who are at Babylon, it's code language for the church in Rome, where they were under Emperor Nero, who was one of the most vicious emperors who ever lived, who sought to destroy Babylon. But they were chosen and they were faithful. They were strengthened and established. And you see Peter, and you see the church in Rome, you see the church in history, and you see the church today even in its brokenness, being restored and established and strengthened. And then I love that he puts Mark in here. Mark, you have Mark, who Peter says, this is my son. This is my spiritual son. Who's Mark? This is John Mark, the disciple of Christ, who earlier in his life jumped ship, who left the mission, but later was restored. And the apostle Paul says, Bring Mark to me in one of his letters. He says, bring Mark to me. He's useful. He's been restored and established. Peter says, he's my spiritual son. He greets you. And wherever we go, whatever circumstances you're in, whatever world you live in, the gospel works. Even when we fail, our Savior is able to restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish. And therefore, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the power. To him be the glory. Verse 
let's land this plane. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter actually tells us why he's writing. Why is Peter writing? And he says, By Savannah, a faithful brother, as I regard and I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter is writing, telling them, it's almost like what, the nerve of him, right? He is the rock who crumbled under the pressure of a little servant girl. We know his story. The readers know the story of Peter. He never hid the fact that he was a Christian who failed. And so how can Peter talk about standing firm? By God's grace. Stand firm in it. There is no place... No circumstance, no imaginable circumstance or condition where the gospel and its grace cannot save, restore, establish, confirm that it will not work. There is no situation where Jesus cannot save and redeem. Peter knows this firsthand. Everything in this book is built upon the foundation of God's grace, not our obedience. The foundation is His grace. We often flip that around thinking the foundation is our obedience and therefore if I'm obedient, maybe He'll pour out His grace and blessing upon me. Maybe I'll be acceptable. Maybe I've earned enough brownie points. Therefore, now I could stand in Him, in His presence. And when we're like that, we get driven by, uh, by duty. We get beaten down by life. But when the grace of God, earlier he says, the God of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, not good advice. When the good news that Jesus says, when we are built upon this, We will live a life of obedience and faithfulness and boldness. And in his grace, he continues to enable and strengthen us today. It's not self-improvement where then God will be gracious to you. And if you fail, he's hostile to you. God is gracious to his children, and that has to be our motivation. It's only when you truly understand and are standing in grace that you will not fall in suffering. That God's grace, it's the only reason, reason suffering won't destroy your faith and your joy. And when we've lost sight of his mercy and love and grace, that gives Christianity is such a bitterness, but when you are standing in it, there's a sweetness we can have even when we're facing suffering. Stand firm in God's grace. Stand in His grace. Live in it. Rejoice in it. Soak it in. That's what we need. We can never, ever be a church that moves past God's grace. Whatever you're experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. His grace is sufficient for you.
I'm just going to read this passage again. And this time, instead of reading it out loud, I'm reading it to you. I'm reading it to you, and I'm reading it to me. I want you to think this is God speaking to you because it is. And I'm going to close with that. So just hear the word of God spoken to you and over you in whatever situation you're in. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I ran briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And save your church. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, We want to come to you as your children, remembering that you are our Father, we are your children. For many of us, we're tired, we're struggling, we're suffering. Help us to suffer well. Help us to humble ourselves and recognize that we are under your mighty hand. Help us to truly trust in your sovereignty and in your control. Help us to believe that even when we can't see it, because we see the gospel, how much you love us and care for us. Help us to humble ourselves before your mighty hand. And right now in our prayers, help us to cast our anxieties upon you. Our souls, for many of us, I'm sure, maybe our souls are cast down are broken. But right now, would you remind us to hope in you, our God and salvation.
Lord, help us to be sober-minded, to fight for our faith and to resist the devil. And so, God, we, we need you. Every day we need you. If we're going through suffering, I pray that your grace would be sufficient for us, for your power is made perfect in weakness. Strengthen us, establish us, restore us, and confirm us. And it is not our prayer that you take us out of suffering, but it's our prayer that we would be faithful in it, that we would experience your power and love as you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And for all of us, God, Maybe more than anything, we pray that we would remember that you are the God of all grace. That we are saved by grace and we will progress by faith, uh, by grace. We'll finish the race by grace. Would that melt our hearts? And so would you be near to us, oh God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.